You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to the RN Mentor Podcast. I have the great pleasure today of having uh, Barbara Glickstein. Uh, she is the principal of Barbara Glickstein Strategies. Uh, she is also a public health nurse, media maker, and digital media strategist. Uh, she is a strategist for Carolyn Jones Productions on the feature-length documentaries, The American Nurse, Defining Hope, and In Case of Emergency. Glickstein was co-PI for the Woodhall Revisited Project that replicated the original Woodhall study from 1997 and found that today's nurses are used as sources in only 2% of health news stories. She is one of the lead authors on a follow-up qualitative study for journalists' experiences with using nurses as sources in the American Journal of Nursing, Glexine was selected to participate in Take the Lead's 50 Women Can Change the World in Journalism 2019, and she is a fellow at the New York Academy of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit, I'm, I'm, I'm always in awe of everything that you do, uh, and and it's one of the main reasons I've wanted you on this show, and I'm so happy that you were able to, uh, to be here. We've been trying to get you on the show for a while, so happy uh, to be here. Thank you, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm just gonna get right into it because I have so much I want to talk to you about. Um, first of all, uh, nursing. What got you into the world of nursing? And how did it eventually we'll get into how it developed to what it is today. Uh, so how did you get started in the world of nursing? Honestly, I always wanted to be a nurse since I was a child. And I'll briefly tell you that I was um, many stages in my life. I've gone off path and come back to nursing. So I was in the pre-nursing program back in the 70s. I dropped out of college the first time around. Uh, it was the early 70s, and I was finding myself. And when I returned to college in 1976 after working in women's health and waitressing and traveling, I was in the pre-nursing program at the State University of New York at the College of Westbury my first semester. And again, it was a time of feminism, working on intersectionality, uh, revolutionary ideas in college, and I was engaged in all of it. Uh, at some point in my first semester, I was invited by two professors that I respected, two women. One was a community health specialist. The other one was a women's health specialist. And they wanted to know why I was in pre-nursing and not pre-med, that we needed more women in medicine. I was in my early 20s. It was quite impressed that these two women who I really looked up to wanted me to be a physician. Um, and I was so influenced that I switched course and became pre-med. 
left pre-nursing, became a biology major. Long story short, in 1980, when I applied to medical school, I did not get into one interview or one program. And I was kind of crushed, but um, I also believe it was the best thing that happened because uh, with all due respect to my colleagues in medicine, I really am a nurse and I really identified as a nurse. Uh, I uh, went for an interview to become a PA shortly after all these rejections. And I'm forever grateful to the dean of a program that I interviewed with who said, I would offer you a slot today, but I want to know what happened. What's, what's the story? How are you winding up here in this PA program interview? And I told him and he said, I'm going to do you a big favor I'm going to tell you I'll accept you next year. And I think you should take some time off and really think about what you want to do. And we talked about nursing and we talked about medicine. And I left and I took a job at uh, New York University as a receptionist in a dermatology practice. That was at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic in New York. And during that time, I realized that nursing really was the profession that really fit my my intellectual interest, as well as the frame of how I saw the world. So I was able to go back to school with a second degree during a period of time where there were not um, fast track programs for nurses with other degrees to become RNs. And fortunately, I'm pretty assertive, I have always been, and I convinced NYU to let me take just the nursing courses. Uh, I had to sit for some exams that they wanted me to prove that I knew physics and organic chemistry and a few other classes. And I told them that if you really wanted me as a student, it was the only way I would arrive here. And I want to honor Dr. Earlene McGriff, who was uh, very influential at that time, as well as Dr. Connie Vance in supporting me on my journey and getting my RN degree in a brief amount of time. Uh, I graduated and started working as a clinical nurse at St. Luke's Hospital in New York City, again, during the height uh, now of uh, the epidemic. And during my years working and going to school to get this RN BSN degree, uh, we were seeing a tremendous amount of people uh, dying of HIV AIDS before we had AC. All the other the medications that we know now keep people alive. So I started working, and I was floated to these units where we had responsibility over very, very, very sick patients. I was green; I didn't have a lot of clinical experience, so I would go down to the director of nursing when I was assigned and floated to these very intense, high acuity patients, and I'd say that I was taking this assignment under protest. And the director of nursing at the time would say to me, what do you mean? And I said, I just got my license. I'm 30 years old. I'm not a young person without a sense of using my voice. And I think you're putting me in an unsafe situation for the people who I have to care for. So I would make them document it. Long story short, I left after several months and went back to graduate school and recognized that I could be a nurse that maybe with a graduate degree in public health, I would be able to be more influential in changing policy. Uh, At the time, um, it felt that when I spoke to my more senior nurses on these units, I was the new nurse, they would say, there's nothing we could do. And I would say, yes, there is, we can fight, we can mobilize, we can organize, we can unionize. Uh, But they were uh, understandably overwhelmed and um, also really felt like the system wasn't listening 
to what we were doing. Um, I want to add that before I graduated in 1985 from NYU, my professor of the leadership and nursing course, Dr. Connie Vance, we had to do sort of a capstone project. And I said that I wanted to do a video documentary about nurses in political action. And she said, have you ever made a video be documentary before? And I said, no. And she subsequently, we're now colleagues and friends, said she thought to herself, well, I guess I should say that's fine. She has this big idea for this semester, the leadership course. And so um, another nursing student uh, and I went out and rented these huge video cameras that at the time weighed a lot and you'd sit on your shoulder. And um, we had some lighting equipment and we were schlepping around and identified several nurses who were doing critically important stuff in policy. And one of the nurses was an emergency department nurse uh, who herself was living in a domestic violence, gender violence situation. So she knew from her own experience over the years prior to her coming out publicly that when she was abused and uh, physically hurt, she would get in her car and drive out of the neighborhoods that she lived and worked in to get medical care. And when she was finally able to, after years of that experience, get into a safe harbor and safe space, um, she started working on New York State lobbying issues of identifying victims of uh, gender violence. Um, another psych nurse was involved in uh, instituting better psych care. And a team of nurses, the last I want to mention, were doing community outreach to the um, unhoused people in New York City. And it was the beginning of the discovery of the dual diagnosis, that those who were mainly unhoused were both living um, mainly many of them living with um, mental health and substance abuse issues. So it was a terribly made video with great content, which landed me an interview on an all-nurse produced radio show for Pacifica Radio. And after the interview, I said, I want to do this. How can I get involved? So I volunteered for this nurse production team. So that's the beginning of my media and nursing and uh, commitment to elevating the voices of nurses throughout the world. That, that, that's amazing. I know, I know a little bit about your, about your backstory on this. Um, so um, how was it like, how did you, how, you know, um, what did it feel like for you to step into this uh, role of wanting to get involved and, and, and getting started uh, in the media when there wasn't really, I mean, there still continues to be like nursing voices are not around enough, not enough of them are around. So uh, what was it like stepping into that role uh, as such, uh, you know, so early on in your career? I really want to acknowledge my parents raising me in a home where uh, journalism was very much a part of our every night, five o'clock dinner after my dad got home from work. And being engaged in politics and policy as a working class family, uh, my mother worked in a factory and my father was a truck driver and there were four children. And it was critical that they discuss and help us understand the role that we had as, as citizens. Uh, my parents were first generation Eastern European Americans. Their parents were immigrants. And they really understood that national and foreign policy impacted the lives of our family. 
and their lives. And so I grew up, my parents had two newspapers delivered to the home. And in those days, there was an AM and a PM uh, print edition of uh, the newspapers, and we got them all. And whatever happened during um, the day that they discovered in terms of the news, we would discuss at dinner. And we were encouraged to have an opinion. Um, certainly as we grew and became um, older, we had to back up that opinion with facts. So I think I learned early on that having an opinion meant knowing what the truth was, finding out what the truth was meant reading more than one source. And then when I was a teenager, there were a couple of things that happened in our neighborhood that were reported by the media that I knew was not how it happened. So it was the beginning of my having more of a discerning, um, critical eye to the media. And I also want to credit my parents for that, that you don't have, you cannot believe everything you read or see, that you must really try and dig into the news. I think I've always been really interested in the media as a result of that. So when I recognized how, um, what the power of the media was, and then became a nurse and as a feminist and as someone who wanted to use media to amplify a number of issues of injustice and inequality back even from being in nursing school, I recognized that media was the platform. Certainly television, which still is incredibly powerful, uh, was the media that um, I didn't get to reach, but I did get onto radio. And um, after I was accepted as a volunteer and worked uh, together with this team and still currently my colleague, and very dear friend, Dr. Diana Mason, and I became the senior producers and co-hosts of a weekly live uh, radio program, then moved on after 35 years to be a podcast. And now she's back live on radio, and I've taken a break from podcasting for now. That's fantastic. Uh, now, I, uh, as far as, um, uh, I mean, you guys were, were pioneers in, in, in getting nursing voices out. What do you think that why there hasn't been like a bigger push for nursing uh, to really have their voice out there? There's a Woodhall study. You've done the research on it. What was, what's, what's, what's holding us back? Well, I think there are multiple threads to it, um, Ali, to be frank. And I know that you had an extensive podcast conversation with Diana Mason about Woodhull. And I'll just repeat some of the key findings, which you mentioned in terms of the percentages of nurses in the media. I think what we've identified is that there's sexism. Uh, so nursing is predominantly a female profession. There's power hierarchy. Um, most of the media and most journalists still reach to our colleagues in medicine, physicians. Uh, there are the so-called rock star physicians that you see constantly being uh, quoted, interviewed on TV. And in addition to that, we know that uh, nurses are not given the leadership and media competency training as part of our uh, education. We know that professional nursing organizations, who some of whom have media uh, staff because they have the funding for it, in, in some ways continue to put forth the CEO, the executive director, and maybe the current president of that organization, which is fine, but they not, they're not yet digging into the membership where a lot of the expertise is as well. And finally, what our studies identified was that um, marketing departments, public affairs, uh, PR departments, not only in um, 
medical centers throughout the country, but in addition, universities, they tend to not provide a nurse as a source when a journalist calls and even asks for one. Uh, and then we know that a lot of journalists are still unsure uh, what it is that nursing does and how, in fact, they can find nurses as expert sources. So unfortunately, um, what I say when I do media training to nurses is Google yourself. See how easy it is to find you. See how easy it is to connect with you by your mobile phone, or maybe you only use your academic or work email, but don't check that every hour or so. And journalists are on deadline. So if they can't find you easily, they're going to move on to the next source. And so the other thing I always say to nurses is amongst yourselves and your colleagues in the areas that you can speak to that health issue, that policy issue, have two other nurse colleagues agree that you can immediately bump that journalist to them so that we're not missing an opportunity to let a nurse be a source in that story. So there are multiple threads that we are now working on strategically. We have the data. And I think that I'll be honest with you, Ali, you know, not everybody does a podcast. I think those who feel comfortable and confident, it's a lot about confidence and building that confidence. Not every nurse will want to be in the media. Some nurses don't want to be in front of a camera, so they'll be more comfortable being in print. And I always recommend, you know, this is not a have to, this is a let's get the front runners. And I don't say that uh, to dismiss the others who don't want media engagement. But if you have the interest, get the skills, get your voice out there, be engaging, we will begin to see more. So our Diana and I, uh, and also Christy Wellsman, who um, was the co-author of that study on the interviewing the journalists, we have been reaching out to journalists. You probably, I know you follow me on Twitter. You always see me thanking a journalist and, you know, tagging them when I repost an article when they've used a nurse as a source. They're human, like all of us. They appreciate being acknowledged when they do it. And I always encourage nurses that when you are used as a source in a health news story, at the end of that, thank the journalist and then say, are you looking for other news stories? I have a few ideas. So let me introduce you uh, to Dr. Ali Taib. And he also has some incredible stories Freelance reporters are mostly every reporter is always looking for a great story. And if they can't run it by their editor or pitch it to that media outlet right away, they'll know that you're a great source for other stories. Uh, that, that's great advice. And I've had the I've, I've had the pleasure of picking your brain uh, quite a bit over the over the last year. Um, now, let's say I'm a I'm I'm, I'm a nurse uh, who uh, who isn't in media, uh, but I want to get involved. Uh, what, would, what would some of the like the first steps be for me to just get started? Just you know, kind of put my toes in the water. Yeah, it's good. I hope everybody who's listening wants to dip in. I would say follow health reporters. Know your local health reporters uh, on all media out front, uh, all media fronts. So television, uh, newspaper, digital, online, radio. I'm a big radio person. Follow them. Listen to them. See what they're reporting on. Get to know their style. Then pitch to them. You know, send them an email. DM them on Twitter. Follow them on Twitter for sure. And when they do something that is relevant or you think they did a great job, let them know. And then tell them. Or if you think they missed the voice of the nurse in your area, 
you can write them again, DM them on Twitter, send them an email. Thank you for covering this issue. It's really great that in the midst of COVID, you're also being giving a chance to cover childhood vaccinations and the need for uh, supporting communities for safe access for children to go and get their vaccinations. I'm a nurse. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. Here's an area that I really think would be helpful to include in the next time you cover this issue and I'm available to be interviewed. Or, thanks for covering this. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. I'd really like to talk to you about a lot of concerns parents have about how COVID-19 vaccine is not yet available for children under the age of 16. I have some very good um, responses for your concerned community that reads your newspaper. Again, building human relationships is what makes the world go round. So start building those relationships. Maybe you want to write a letter to the editor in response to an article that that journalist wrote. Or maybe you have an op-ed idea. I always tell nurses, start locally. Uh, yes, you can write that op-ed and submit it to the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today. But know that journalists also are always looking for stories and sources, and they will be reading those stories if they're looking to cover an article about pediatric access under the age of 16 in the near future for the COVID-19 vaccine to be timely. I also recommend that um, maybe there's a local newspaper that needs an article or a column written by a nurse once a month. Why don't you be that nurse? Uh, it could be, I'll answer a question for you. Build your media focus based on your level of comfort and where you think you can have the biggest impact and then grow from there. I know that not every nurse wants to be on social media. They may be, of course, enjoying listening to your podcast series. Ali, I would never tell someone they have to be on social media, but I would suggest that it provides an outlet for networking being known for your expertise, putting out articles that are helpful to the public, as well as your own research. If you're a nurse researcher, learn how to translate your research into a newsworthy pitch. By that, I mean, you may have just published this article. It's sitting in a wonderfully well-deserved peer-reviewed journal, and it's just sitting there. What do we want to do with that research? So keep your eyes and your ears and your uh, and your heart open to a newsworthy pitch to a journalist, create that newsworthy pitch, tell them that you have expertise in this area, you've recently published on it, give them a link to your article, and let them know what the news hook is. Why does this matter to the public? It can't just be an internal uh, speaking to yourself or speaking only to the nursing community. Why does this matter to the public? Because that journalist will have to convince their editor that this is newsworthy for their public reader or listener. That, that's, that, that's great advice. Actually, I took one of those uh, advice when we spoke a while back and when you mentioned uh, to start locally and look at. So I went for, for the story that I had, which has, you know, has grown since I started with it. Um, uh, I've actually, I went to my, I went to my university uh, newspaper and I said, like, "Hey, do you want to cover this?" And it was actually the public affairs that picked it up, and it's it's managed to get into a couple of newspapers, and it's going to get uh, published in a few months in a in a uh, in a in a nursing journal. 
I should just say it, the American Journal of Nursing. Yes, I'm so gonna, excited. I'm so excited. Is gonna is gonna publish the story or or, or the artwork itself. It's you know, um, uh, I want to say I had a vision board in my head that where I wanted it published, and it's kind of taken off uh, from there. And um, it's it's good, it, you know, it's it's great advice. It's advice that works, and I and I can kind of attest to it because I actually, like I said, I've picked your brain before, and uh, I've big gone based off of what you've recommended and it's actually taken off uh, from there. So, so thank you for that. You're welcome. And I'm so thrilled about the um, exposure that you're getting around your art. And I see media as art form. And I've talked to you about this as well extensively that, you know, art is political. Nursing is political. Using the media as a nurse is a political act. And I am thrilled that your work has gotten the exposure that it's gotten. I wanted to say that um, when I pre-COVID and doing in-person media training over the last 10 years, I would, part of the exercise when it was in person was before we left for people to complete a media plan. What are your visions for yourself in one year, five years, 10 years? And that was when, um, well, actually a few years back when uh, Oprah was still had her daytime television show. And almost everybody would say, I want to be on Oprah. And I would, <laughs> or I want to be published in the New York Times in year one. And, and I would be like, go for it. But your local paper is really a good place to start. And you can build towards that. Uh, And so writing books and being published in uh, magazines that are not ones that we think about often, but are really great places. Getting an article in People magazine, which I hope happens for you, Ali, about your artwork. Look who reads People. Um, I did media training for a nurse who did uh, her research was on cardiac rehabilitation for people who had ambulatory issues. And her research showed that using um, the upper arm and body strength actually had significant contribution to uh, cardiac rehabilitation. And her research study was picked up by the National Enquirer. The reporter was at a multidisciplinary cardiac convention that she presented her findings at. And she was a little... um, embarrassed that it got picked up by the National Enquirer when she was telling me about the media hits she's already had. And I was like, what are you embarrassed about? Look how many people read the National Enquirer. Some of us don't admit it, but we'll say, oh, I read it in my dentist's office. Like I read People Magazine and or Cosmo or Elle Mag. I mean, now we know how brilliantly so many of these um, Women's magazines are covering health issues by brilliant science and health reporters. Never be concerned if you're reaching the public. That's why we do what we do. And getting good health information, getting good policy recommendations, helping others understand the role of policy and its influence in your individual family and community health is why we do what we do and why the media is so important to be engaged. That, that's um, that's. I, I mean, I, I'm real. I'm relating as you're talking about this. I'm, I'm relating to it in in, in various forms. And I, I, questions kind of popping into my head is, from a nursing perspective, how much do we value our voice in the media? Because I can tell you from a, from an academic perspective, like uh, same information. Like I can do a research study 
and it will go to a publication and um, I'll get credit for it because it was published in a peer reviewed journal. Right. Um, but the same or a same story meant for, you know, the same research, if you translate it for the public and it goes to a newspaper, for example, and it reaches millions versus a thousand subscribers, it reaches millions of people. But like on an academic perspective, I don't think they value that as much, even though you're reaching a broader audience, your message is getting out to a broader audience. Um, so I guess it's more from an academic perspective and from a nursing perspective, how much uh, should we be putting value in media coverage of the work that we do and the research that we do? This comes up a lot. And um, I, I have to say in the last several years since we've published the Woodhull study and have um, collaborated with universities and uh, doctoral directors of doctoral programs and nurses who are in the tenure track, which I think is what you're referring to as well. They've been concerned about this fact that public engagement not being part of the tenure track evaluation needs to be looked at. And I, you and I both agree there are many things in academic nursing uh, that need to be looked at. And this is, again, one of them. You're impa- being impactful through public and community engagement should not be ignored. And there, the balance of doing the uh, peer-reviewed research and publications and books and many of the criteria that are currently included in that tenure track evaluation Maybe all of it doesn't have to continue to be in there so that the person in that tenure track doesn't feel completely overwhelmed. But maybe the options of those who are front runners in the media engagement piece and the public engagement, community engagement work need to be better identified and qualified in their tenure track position. Some of the deans that are open to this conversation are beginning to see that um, this shift, as well as other shifts we can talk about, need to begin to to be seriously looked at. I know that um, some brilliant younger academic schools of uh, nursing professors that I know have been forced to reduce their amount of interest in media because of the demands of publications and peer-reviewed journals. And you and I know, although that's critically important work and I support that, if it's just gonna sit in that peer-reviewed journal and not influence policymakers, um, boards of directors of academic institutions and academic medical centers to change practice, to support chief nursing officers, to have this data and know about this data, then our work is being limited by not being put out there to be seen by and funded by those that can to implement the research findings that will matter in the public's health and well-being. Yeah, I completely, I, I completely agree with that part because for me, it just, um, you know, having those journals behind locked behind paywalls where the general public don't have access to them. And no one's going to pay $30, $50 to get that one journal just to look at it uh, if it's not available. And that's one of the reasons I think uh, open access is so important. But again, even though it's open access, it's not uh, mainstream. And how do we get 
nursing knowledge, nursing research mainstream. Absolutely. So you and I know that our Twitter colleague, Melanie Rogers, the public health nurse who lives in Colorado, uh, led the charge on a major Twitter dialogue thread that still goes on about open access and what the need for that and the need for that. I, I think in addition, as we talk about media and nurses engaging journalists, I want to add, if you have published in a uh, journal that there is a paywall, be sure that you can get a PDF of that journal article so that the journalist does not have to um, struggle to get a copy of your research when you're pitching it as being newsworthy. So thanks for that reminder. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, you know, um, uh, the system I work with, the Cal State system that I work in, and actually California is really pushing back uh, on those uh, on those. Uh, uh, how how they're being published because most of the research that's being done is being done for free for those journals by academics who, and then their institutions have to turn around and pay the journals to get those that research back into their system. Uh, so I know the UC system, University of California system, uh, is uh, in the midst of renegotiations. And I know the Cal State's are in the midst of renegotiations around that whole uh, whole things because um, there's definitely an issue with uh, uh, you know it becomes like an equity issue really of how where knowledge lives and where how it can be accessed. And if we step back even one step further, it's citizens' tax dollars. If you're funded by a federal grant that has paid for that research, that has funded that university, that should be translated into public knowledge because we paid for it. Right. So the system, uh, and, and with due respect to the publishing world, and you're as aware of this as I am, is it's become impossible with ad drops and digita- the digital space where journals are now mostly produced and not in print, that they have their own struggles. But I think... Together, we need to figure this out better and, um, you know, respectfully recognize and acknowledge that this flow of information has its obstacles. And as you have stated, where is the equality of getting that information to where it will be most impactful? And how do we do that? What do we innovate? How do we innovate that space? How do we allow for that, that information to become more accessible. So nurses who did that research are doing that when they engage the media and make it newsworthy. Right. And it's put on all the media channels that we can access. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, and, and you know, that like the journals, they are, they are a business and nothing taken, not taken away from, from that component. But uh, again, there, there is definitely a, um, there, there are barriers for everybody to get the information, to have access to, to evidence-based practice, to research, to um, all that good stuff. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, uh, I, I want to briefly touch on um, um, what we can do um, from as as a profession. What are we not doing as a profession that we can do as a profession um, to get the voice of nursing. Um, out there from whether it's from an organizational level from like what are some tangible 
action items. That's not necessarily on an individual level because you're going to have those individuals that are willing to step forth. Um, but how, from a, from a profession and organizational level, what kind of support do nurses need in order to get out in the world of media? I think there are multiple ways that we can begin to elevate and amplify nurses being engaged in media. And as I mentioned earlier, it's building media competencies. Right. Uh, the, the Future of Nursing report, which is 10 years old, talked about leadership, and this is a leadership issue. I personally believe that in the um, pre-licensure licensure education media competencies should be integrated and uh, developed. So if you're taking a class on leadership, even before that senior year or the end of your program, you get it there. And or um, I'm sure you, I actually know that you use some of these media um, engaged innovative ways in your teaching, Ali, that you encourage students uh, in your pre-licensure programming and, and then graduate degree for sure to use media, create videos, um, make a podcast series, uh, engage journalists about ideas that you have. It, it should be something that is part of our education and training and application. Uh, how often do we even share among the students in a class a really um, a project that was made using different media platforms, even within your, your own uh, teaching class. So you're beginning to seed this idea that your ideas matter, that your voice is important, that your voice can be put out there and um, diplomatically and in a civilized way uh, pushed back on um, because that's how we learn. I know a lot of people are afraid to step out and have an opinion these days because of, um, you know, harassment. And, you know, we can talk about that as being a fear that nurses have, certainly in the digital space. As you know, I recently uh, co-sponsored a bystander intervention uh, webinar uh, with uh, a, an organization called Hollaback because we know that nurses, both from speaking that COVID is real, uh, why public health strategies matter, as well as now why COVID vaccines are critical to the um, moving out of this uh, very serious pandemic where 500,000 people have died. So the fear of using your voice um, can be addressed and encouraged to move forward with what is it that you're afraid of? How do we help you develop a stronger voice? How do we help you build the skill to do public speaking? Are you, uh, what area do you need help with? Everyone's slightly different and all of us share the desire to speak with eloquence and professionalism and fact. That can be, that's training. That's, that's not magic, that's training. So I propose, as well as my colleagues working in this space, that it become part of our education. And not a one-off, but really integrate media throughout curricula. And certainly in the graduate and doctoral degree level, including doctoral degree and DNP and beyond, again, translate your work, make it media and newsworthy. On the professional organization side, we also think that they should be 
encouraging and supporting media training, um, either through your individual institutions. Nurses can, you know, phone up or ask their dean or ask their, you know, at, contact their Department of Public Affairs, and just like you did when you told them about your art project, and say, I'm really interested in the media. I'd like to learn how to do, be better at it. I'd like to gain that competency. I'd like to be a voice around the issue that I have expertise in and see where that goes. Uh, there are outside opportunities to also get that training. I recommend the Op-Ed Project. Uh, it's a wonderful website, the Op-Ed Project, with a lot of free resources and ideas that will allow you to begin to form that first draft of the Op-Ed and work together with your colleagues to uh, co-author as well as read each other's work. I think the professional nursing organizations are aware that they have to uh, make their availability more uh, current as well as uh, respond again to a journalist. Anyone who's contacted by a journalist, if you're in the middle of something or you need some time, you don't want to speak to them right away for whatever reason, the first question you should ask them is, are you on deadline? And find out if they need to talk to you that night or they have three days and you can take the time to formulate your ideas, decide what it is are the key messages that you want to give to this journalist and um, let them know that you can get back to them at five o'clock at the end of your day or it's 7 a.m. the next morning, whatever it is, um, so that they know you want to be engaged with them and not blown off. And again, if you can't do it because you're... Um, your, that deadline doesn't match what your current immediate needs are, whether it's family or professionally or your individual reasons. Have those two or three other nurses with their contact information and agreement that you can give that to the journalist right away. So there are the individual things, the professional organizations we know, I hear from journalists a lot. I sent an email to the info at fillintheblank.org. It's been three days. No one got back to me. Now, sometimes they don't have the staff to answer that. So perhaps whoever is at that organization is willing to, on that website, put their most easily accessible website or email, excuse me, to get contact with. On an academic level, we recommend that deans at schools of nursing meet regularly with their public affairs department, uh, know what's going on with their faculty and students and let them know uh, once a month, if not more frequently. Uh, we have this really great new research that's being published this month in AJN. Um, here's the pitch, here's the nurse, here's her availability, here's his availability. Uh, what can you do? Can you pitch the story to your media outlets? If you don't have anything that month, everyone's very happy to have that standing meeting canceled. Call them and let them know, uh, well, there's still COVID, there's still other public health concerns, there's still other issues, but right now we don't have any current research. I'll be back in touch with you more recently. When you engage the people who are involved in pitching the stories or responding to journalists, and you say, I'm available, I have this news story, you won't be forgotten. You know, that old, the squeaky wheel gets the oil story? Well, be that squeaky wheel. If you are media competent, if you've had media training, for sure contact the people who are 
are responsible for hearing first from journalists or pitching stories and tell them, I've had media training. I feel very media ready. And if you are comfortable being on social media, you can pitch journalists directly in that fashion. That's Did great. I cover enough ground for you on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah uh, actually, it, it, it brought up a, a question in my head. Uh, <clears throat> what about organizations that have sort of, I don't want to call them gag orders, but they place limitations in people talking to their, <clears throat> their employees talking to media. How do they, how do they approach that? This has been very serious, as you know, and certainly during COVID, um, one of the advantages that I've had, as well as Dr. Diana Mason and some other nurses out there, uh, Marion Leary, again, I know that she's been doing, she has done this and continues to in Pennsylvania, Journalists wanted to find nurses, and they were having a hard time finding them. And we were contacted and asked if we could find nurses who were working um, in ICUs, in emergency departments, on the front lines, if you will, who would be willing to speak to a journalist. And in the beginning, particularly and still with the lack of PPE in some parts of the country, uh, because these nurses were speaking out, and, uh, and doing it without going through their public relations and getting permission, if you will, some of them got fired or threatened right. or, and then were gagged. Then we had journalists contacting us and saying, I'm even willing to talk to nurses anonymously. I will only mention what state they live in. I won't mention the city or the town. There was a situation where in North and South Dakota, when COVID surged in that part of the country. You know, again, it was sort of middle of the country, later than the East and West Coast. If you lived in a small town, one uh, nurse that I will remain anonymous, as well as which of those two states she lived in, she and her mother were both nurses. Both One worked in the ICU and one worked in hospice. And um, she said, I can't be interviewed because everybody in town will know who I am and I would lose my job. So although she wanted to talk to the media, she couldn't. And her story didn't get told, even anonymously. We are working with chief nursing offices going forward about this issue of gag orders and understanding uh, that institutions want to control the message. And my only statement in relationship to the news stories that I just referred to was if nurses weren't brave enough to speak to the media before they were gagged, would they still be waiting for that PPE? Right. And no, I- we, we, I don't want anyone to ever lose their job because they spoke to the media. That is not what I'm suggesting. But what I do want to know is if you're controlling the message and you're not saying what those on the front line were saying without retribution, and we know that although some physicians did get threatened and some lost their jobs, they were put in the camera and put in front of journalists more than nurses were. And that hierarchy of power and the lack of access that nurses had during these times is something that we're gonna be looking at further. Yeah, I completely agree. <clears throat> that it's one of those uh, it's one of those uh, things that I saw a lot. In my you know my artwork 
you know, was one of the reasons I started that is because I saw all those gag orders and I knew they existed. I've, I'm sure I've signed things during my lifetime that says, yes, I'm not going to talk to media and I'll refer it to public affairs or of the organization or whatever. Uh, a little bit more freedom on the academic side, uh, thankfully, but I know from the service side, there's always these restrictions and, you know, uh, we don't like, as you mentioned, we don't want people to lose uh, lose their jobs or their livelihood. A lot of people are they're the primary sort of breadwinners of the of the home. Um, but 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 to silence the nursing voice, I think is, is criminal. And, and you know, um, it, we really need to look at that from a from a profession perspective and see why we're doing what we're doing. Because the, we we really shouldn't we should be transparent. We shouldn't be doing anything that we need to control the messaging. Uh, so if there is some me- message to be put out, it should be um, it sh- there should be a freedom to do so. Ali, I want to add, because I've been in conversation with a nurse attorney about this, and it's not resolved for me um, yet about whether one can speak and not mention their affiliation and speak as a public citizen. Right. So I want to be clear about this. Every person should know the social media policy of their employer. Right. And that there have been cases this past year where posting on social media, even without it saying exactly, I work at X institution, if that information can be traced back through a LinkedIn account or other ways of Googling your name, you can be facing harsh uh, actions that are very harsh can happen. So to protect you, please know you must understand the social media policy, the media policy of your institution before you go out publicly about things and know that there have been cases of nurses losing their position, losing their job, um, doing so. Um, they are state by state. They are institution by institution. And that's not to shut you down from speaking, but if you know your rights and you know the policy, you are in a better place of protecting yourself and the right for you to speak. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you. Uh, but I also want to give you an opportunity if you want to share anything else or uh, I also want to ask you one final question is uh, when are you going to be back up and running with your media courses? Because I know you you provided those and I was planning on attending at some point, but COVID, COVID hit and we all went on, went to, we all shut down. So, yeah. Thanks, Ali. Yeah. Um, well, in person will probably not be for a much longer time. I have been doing virtual training for uh, universities and professional organizations, and I'm about ready to now integrate that into uh, two sessions for individuals who want to do that. My website is barbaraglickstein.com, so you can stay tuned for an upcoming virtual uh, media training session. I've learned how to do this work virtually. It's always more engaging live as teaching is and 
cocktails with friends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we are doing the best that we can um, and are fortunate to be able to continue to do this work. I guess in closing, you asked me what else did I want to share? And and this is what I want to share. Sometimes we feel anxious and we fear doing media. And I'm going to suggest that the other part of that is that you're really excited about the idea of doing media. And sometimes in our gut, which is our other brain, we get mixed up that we think it's, oh, I'm so nervous. I can't do this. But really what it is, is I'm so excited. I really want to do this. So listen to that voice. Overcome the fear by building confidence and those skills. They are doable. If writing is something you love to do, start there. Write those commentaries, that op-ed. Write that letter to the editor. Thank that journalist for reporting on that issue. And build that skill. It's like everything. You didn't jump on a bicycle and immediately learn how to ride that two-wheeler and go really, really fast. Same with media competency. Your voice matters. As a nurse, there's ways that you are contributing every single day. And the platforms open to you digitally, um, print, broadcast, go for it. When did you start your podcast, Ali? Uh, About a month into the pandemic. And you have (laughs) 10,000 hits on your podcast. We're almost at 11,000 today. There you go. So everyone who's listening to this podcast Know that when you did this uh, almost a year ago, did you think you'd hit that many hits? Uh, no, I, actually, I didn't even know how, how long I was going to last. But but you're right. It, it, is, it is a learned skill set. And, and actually, I share this with my students a lot. I said, uh, I'm an introvert. This is not my comfort zone to be in front of people and talk and share stories and have these conversations. So it is a learned skill set. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I agree. I, I completely agree with you. It's just a matter of doing it. Just do it. You know, sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, it, it's not a Nike thing, but just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Just do it. Thanks for this conversation. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time and you joining us today. We have been listening to the fantastic Barbara Glick scene. Uh, Thank you for being here and joining us for another week, and we will see each other soon. Have a great one. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.